Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, good morning, King's Cross. It is an unbelievable privilege to be with you this morning. For those of you who don't know me, I, uh, my family and I were, were a part of King's Cross until I ended up taking a pastoral position at another church a little while back. Uh, for those of you who do know me, what's up? Man, not, not uh, too many Sundays go by without somebody in my family saying, oh man, we, we miss King's Cross so much. We wish we could go back to King's Cross. We, we really do miss you guys, which is why I'm really just stoked to have this opportunity to teach this next section in your study through the book of Titus. Uh, I have to apologize up front. I'm sorry for stealing a section from Chris. I, I, um, I tell anybody who will listen, as far as I'm concerned, Chris is easily one of the best teachers in Orange County, if not the, the state of California. I, I hope you guys know what a privilege it is for him to be your pastor, to, to sit under his teaching week in and week out and to have him shepherd you. So this, this will be a, a step down this week, but I'll do my best to handle the text well, and, and hopefully God will be glorified at the end. So let's get into this. It's interesting when you when you recognize, uh, you know, sort of a, a universal desire in the human race, you know, where it doesn't seem to, to matter the, the time or the culture, you find humans kind of striving for or pursuing these particular desires. And, and one of those is a desire for transformation. And, and we see that all over the place played out in a, in a multitude of ways, everything from kind of, you know, religion to culture to individuals, for, for example, at the root of just about every religion is the desire to, to transform in some way in order to earn salvation, you know, to fight against our natural impulses and, and earn our way through good works or acts or, or the like to, to heaven, paradise, Valhalla, the oneness, whatever it is that, that you believe in. But it's essentially personal transformation through effort that, that's really at the center of many religions. Or you, you look at the culture wars, which are front and center these days. People engage in the power structures of society, or they attempt to tear down the power structures of society to, to transform the culture into whatever it is that they think is going to be better. Or, of course, how about individually? I mean, how many billions of dollars are, are spent each year on, on transforming ourselves physically, whether that's through diet and exercise or, or surgery? And, and how many billions of dollars are spent on self-help books and, and therapists to help us transform mentally, to, to overcome hurdles that are that are preventing us from, from transforming our, ourselves and our lives into, again, whatever it is that we think is going to bring us happiness and satisfaction. It really is interesting to consider how the, de how the desire to transform. Uh, it seems to be virtually universal, yet that is one of the reasons I adore God's life-giving and errant word so much because he tells us through his word that ultimate transformation only happens from the inside out, and that only happens as a result 
of God's work in us. He's the only one who can ultimately transform us. It's his work, not ours. But the beauty of that truth is, as a result, he gets all the glory and we end up receiving what we so desperately desire, which is life and and fellowship and salvation and true transformation through him. And so that's what we're going to be studying today as we we dig in uh, into this next section of verses in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, as the Spirit writing through Paul really really kind of takes us on this sort of master class in, in theology and salvation. This is a pretty unbelievable section of verses, so please uh, find your way there if you haven't already. As you studied Last week, Paul begins this chapter reminding believers some of the ways that we are to live godly lives. And then in verse 3, he reminds the readers, and and thus all believers, what we once were before we were saved and what we we would still be if we were never saved. And and I have to tell you, before we kind of run through this list, this is frankly a a pretty depressing, kind of disgusting list that, that he provides here, but it's really a perfect summary of what we see played out in the world really every day, which is a result of what's going on in the hearts of people in the world every day. So let, let's let's check this out. Let's, let's run through this together. He begins by, by saying, for we ourselves were once. Again, he's reminding all who are now saved, this is what used to define us all because this is what defines all who are not in Christ. And first on the list of what we once were is foolish. Now, this is a kind of an interesting word. We, we could easily kind of pass over this thinking it's kind of rather benign. You know, if we were going to call somebody a name, fools, probably not on our go-to list. We have much stronger epithets to offer. But in Scripture, to be called a fool is, is actually about as bad as it gets, and here's why. You might recall Romans 1, which is this sort of devastating description of the process that takes place when when both people and societies abandon God. And, And in its description in verse 19, it says, even though God obviously exists, I mean, all you have to do is look at the intricacies of the universe to know that. But instead of recognizing and living in light of that obvious truth, as verse 18 says, we suppress the truth. So it's not that we couldn't figure it out because we don't have enough information. It's not that we were ignorant. It's that we know the truth and we choose to suppress it, bury it, run away from it, and create our own truth. And so the result is, in in verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. There you have it. There's that word. Although the world loves to claim how wise and sophisticated it is and all its theories and rationalizations of rejecting God and putting ourselves in his place, the reality of suppressing the truth is we become fools. And really, we can be nothing other than that because we're we're actually choosing to live in a lie. We're choosing to live in a false reality of our own making, so we become fools, who, as Christ said, Love the darkness rather than the light. And, and this is where it kind of gets even more devastating. As it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, Paul referring to unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And the God of this world referred to there is Satan, who is ultimately behind every anti-God system. So if we suppress the truth, 
and reject God, we choose to live in darkness, we become fools, and as a result, Satan keeps us in the dark, blinding our minds so that we can't even see the light of the gospel. And that shouldn't be news to us. The world hates the gospel. The world hates Christ. The world hates everything he stands for, at least in part because they are blinded by Satan. Now, someone might be hearing that and thinking, whoa, hold on, hold on a second here. That, that's totally unfair. I mean, Satan's blinding me. You just said that. So how, how can I possibly be held responsible for that? But it's, it's not unfair, if, and that becomes obvious when we go back to Romans 1, picking up in verse 24. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Skipping ahead to verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. God gave them up. That's the repeated phrase. So one of the most really horrifying judgments of God is when he says, you, you want to reject me and live in the darkness despite my, my love, my grace, my sending my, uh, my son to die for you. Okay, you can have it. I, I'm turning you over. I'm giving you up to your desires. And the frightening result, again, is we love the darkness. We're blinded by Satan. We're living in sin, all of which means we're heading towards certain eternal death, or simply put, we become fools. So that's why being called a fool is, in, in Scripture, like I said, it's, it's really about as bad as it gets, which, again, Paul's reminding us, we all once were that before we were saved. Next on the list is that we were once disobedient, or we might say, another way to say that would be, we were anti-authority. Uh, if there's anything that, that defines our world, probably generally speaking, but it seems now in our culture, maybe more than ever, it, it's this. You know, I mean, my parents are lame. Teachers are the worst. I hate cops. Pastors are hypocrites. The culture is patriarchal, misogynistic, all that. But, but more than anything, no one gets to tell me what to do, what I say, what I don't say, who I sleep with, or anything else, especially not some sky god from a book written thousands of years ago. I am my own god. And I can literally burn down this world if I want to, because I'm my own authority. No one else is. Well, to put it lightly, that is not righteous. Again, that, that's really how a fool lives. <coughs> Excuse me. And the next two items on the list explain, at least in part, why that's so. Because it says we are led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures. So again, one of the more devastating results of rejecting God, who is truth, both for individuals and a society as a whole, is that the result is we're easily led astray. When you believe in God and his universal truth, you have an anchor, you have, you have a guidepost that informs everything you do and think. It continually guides you in the truth, in light, in righteousness. But if you reject that, you're lost at sea with, with no lighthouse to guide you. So you're easily led astray by anyone or anything that, that your fickle heart desires at that moment. But, but the problem is, is just that. Your heart is fickle. It's deceitfully uh, wicked. And left on its own, it will lead you to follow various passions and pleasures. In, in other words, whatever you, you know, 
feel at any given moment becomes really the master that you're slave to. So, you know, if you want to go on a rant on social media and, and say the most vile things about someone or, or some group, things that <laughs> frankly would probably get you socked in the face if you said it in person, uh, you do that because that's what you want to do. And, and you obey your master. Consequences be damned. If you want to, you know, watch that show or hook up with that person or cancel that friend or, or whatever it is, you do it because you have convinced yourself, again, you're your own God. So you do whatever you want to in your world. But remember, God's word tells us, reminds us that, that that's a lie. It's a false world that you have constructed. So if you were brave enough to peek behind the curtain, you'd see that you're actually a slave in chains, bound to obey your master, and your master is sin and Satan. And, and again, I know that sounds incredibly harsh, but but I, I hope we are, we are people of the truth who are constantly seeking the truth, as, as uncomfortable as that might make us or, or to say to other people. But we are reminded from God's word, the truth is what Romans 6, 17 says, before we were saved, we were slaves of sin. That, that's the literal language in Romans 6, 17. We're slaves of sin. So that's why we're told in verse 12 to not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Because you, you obey your master. You have to. You're the slave. And again, ultimately, your master is not just sin, but it's Satan, as it says in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. When you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So it's actually not true that if you reject God, you become your own God. The truth is, if you reject God, you actually become a slave to sin and Satan. That, that's the truth. See, Scripture says, specifically Romans 6 says, everyone's a slave. You're either unsaved and a slave to sin and thus death, or you're saved and a slave of righteousness, which makes you more like Christ, which is the very reason that you were created in the first place, to be like him and to live in him, again, as Romans 6 continues to say. But the result of being a slave to sin, as it says next on our list, is that we pass our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. <laughs> this list is so interesting. Again, it just seems like we're, we just see this played out before our eyes regularly. Right now in our country, we have uh, you know, a massive amount of people who, uh, not calling names, but we just ran through this. We have to say biblically, they're fools who, who despise authority. They're, they're held captive by belief systems that are antithetical to God. They're driven by unrighteousness. They're driven by the desires to have power or, or, or money or whatever someone else has or tearing down whatever someone has. Uh, and, and ultimately, what's, what's last on the list, pretty much nonstop hatred of one another. You hate me? Awesome. I hate you. Uh, you know, that's <laughs> to a large extent seems to sort of define social media these days. But, but like I said, we're even seeing it played out on our streets right now. But, but again, what we see on our screens is a manifestation of really what's going on in people's hearts as a result of rejecting Christ and his truth. Like I said up front, this is, this is, a, <laughs> this is a difficult list. It, it, it's a list that really turns a, a mirror on our, our society and really our own hearts. And it just gives us this un, unadulterated look and, and it, is, it is not pretty. It, it is rough. But 
verse four, but some, some of Paul's most theologically profound statements are just found in that simple conjunction. But after this, <clears throat> excuse me, this, this devastating, depressing list of what we were like before Christ, what the world is like apart from him, that the spirit writing through Paul is not done. That's not the end of the story. There's more. Evil does not win. We're not left in the abyss of sin with no hope. But, love that word, verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Those words are are just like an ocean of just clean, clear, cool water found by the guy wandering in the desert one more step uh, away from dying of dehydration. This is just like salve for our souls in in contradistinction to the list of horrifying sins and, and their results that we just ran through, we find these soul-satisfying truths of goodness and loving kindness. But this isn't just any goodness or loving kindness. It's, it's the complete, completely perfect goodness and loving kindness that is so pure and powerful, it's almost too much to look upon because they're found in the very character, the very nature, the very essence, the very being of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. But it's not just that the world witnessed that, witnessed true goodness and loving kindness when Jesus Christ came, that that is most certainly true. But it's not just that, it's that in that he came to save us. He came to save those who repent and believe in him. But I don't want to, again, I don't want to miss the magnificence of that. Remember who he came to. He came to to us who embodied the list that, that Paul wrote that we just ran through. He came to a people who, for the most part, rejected him, eventually murdered him because we love the darkness more than the light, because we would rather kill God and be our own gods, or at least fool ourselves that that is true, rather than submit to him. I mean, would, would, would you have come to that? Would you have come to save those people? I, I have to admit, being honest, I think my answer would probably be no. Come to a disgustingly evil world that just wreaks havoc on one another and hates me so much it wants to murder me even when I come in perfect love to save them? I I saw a recent picture of a a protester holding a sign that that said, if Jesus comes again, kill him again. And on a shirt was this kind of stick man throwing a cross in in the, the trash can. And I saw that and I just went, oh man, that just, that makes me shudder. Although I have to give the guy credit, at least he's saying out loud what many people think. I, why would I come to those people? They, they don't deserve loving kindness. They deserve judgment, which by the way is 100% true. And reason 1,462 of why you should all be thankful that I'm not God, because I, I, I wouldn't have come to save us sorry people. But, but God did. God came to save us, even though it's the last thing we deserve. I mean, if we want to talk about what we deserve, we're not talking about salvation. We're, we're talking about judgment. Every single one of us, which is why what Paul says in his next statement, it's why it's so unbelievably profound. In verse 5, it says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Christ didn't come to save us because he he looked down and, yeah, I saw a bunch of people doing a bunch of really bad stuff. But then he also saw a group of people that they were actually pretty good. I mean, at least they were trying. And deep down, they're they're really good people. So he he came to help us out. No, uh, again, back to Romans. Romans 3 says, no one does good. No one is seeking after God. 
That's why it's mercy, as Paul says. We get what we don't deserve. We, we get mercy when we deserve judgment. That, that's what separates Christianity, the truth, from, from every other religion. It, by the way, apologetically speaking, it's why all religions can't be true. It's why all religions are not just different paths to the same destination. Because Christianity, quite literally, says the opposite of just about every single other religion. Every other religion in, in one way or another, like I mentioned at the beginning, really has you earning your way to salvation. Whether it's the, the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, or through devotion and service to a god in Hinduism, or following the Five Pillars of Islam, or doing good works in Mormonism, and on and on and on. Every other religion has you in some way earning your salvation. But God says that is impossible. No one can do anything to make them worthy of salvation other than admitting they're unworthy, repenting of their sin, turning from sin to God, and living with Christ as Lord and Savior. And when anyone does that, in God's mercy, they're saved, as it says, continuing on, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Regeneration is a glorious truth, and it's absolutely fundamental to the gospel. In, in its most basic definition, it literally means rebirth, and, and this really takes us back to transformation. Go, going back to the beginning and the subject of transformation, this is the moment of transformation, if you will. It's, it's instantaneous. The, the moment a person, no matter how sinful, no matter their background, no matter who they are, the moment they genuinely repent and believe in the gospel, they're changed from the inside out. Their heart that is dead in sin is instantaneously becomes alive in Christ, and it has new desires. It, it, it's really a miracle is what it is. A dead person is made alive in Christ. But as glorious as that is, it doesn't stop there. Renewal is also mentioned. And where regeneration is instantaneous, renewal is ongoing, lifelong. It's essentially the process of, uh, another theological term, sanctification, which is basically growing more and more in, into the likeness of Christ, growing more and more into holiness. In, in other words, it, it's acting out externally the transformation that happens internally, acting out externally the transformation that happens internally. So where we once were foolish, uh, excuse me, foolish, and, and we lived according to the list that we, we ran through earlier, when we're regenerated, we're also renewed, which means we live new lives, and we're empowered to live those new lives because we become regenerated. We've been transformed from the inside out. And this is one of the, the signs of, of true salvation. <coughs> excuse me. And I'm sure many of you have experienced this, things that, that you were once totally cool with, you know, shows or, or music or whatever that you really had no problem with. All of a sudden, you, you kind of can't stand it. I mean, you still like the music, but the lyrics, ah, I just don't need the lyrics in my life. We just don't want it in our lives. Because we've now been given new hearts of righteousness that now hate sin, even as we continue to fight sin. And this process continues throughout our lives as we're continually being renewed and matured in Christ's likeness. And, and notice in this glorious statement, this is all the work of our triune God. 
God the Father sent our Savior, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die for us so that we could be regenerated and renewed through the Holy Spirit. This is deep, glorious, Trinitarian truth. But it continues. It gets even better. Continuing in verse 5, it also says, Through Christ, we're justified by His grace so that we, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So these few verses really cover the whole of the glories of salvation. Like I said at the beginning, this is, this is really kind of a, like a master class in, in the essentials of, of the faith. It's, it's just jam-packed with theology. I mean, I, Chris could spend weeks just on, on these verses. Now, on that subject, let, let me just make a, a quick aside about theology, if, if that's okay. And just, just remind everyone, theology is not just for, for, for pastors and theologians. It's for all of us. Because theology isn't just about learning, you know, $5 words like regeneration and sanctification that, that you can, you know, throw around and impress people with. Theology is essential because the truth of God, the truth about us, the truth about this world, the truth about salvation, it's found in these terms. For, for example, the, the very means of our salvation is, is found in the terms that we're digging into right now. They're just loaded with absolutely salvific, essential truth. And, and that's the beauty of theology. It's meant to lead us to eternal praise and thanksgiving of our great God who has saved us. It, it's truth that is meant to transform us. It's a lived truth. Theology is a lived reality. And the deeper you go into that reality, the deeper you know and love our, our undescribable, ineffable God. So, so I encourage you, dig into theology. It's the heartbeat of reality. It's the heartbeat of your relationship in Christ. Now, back to some of that theology. Paul next throws out arguably the, the most important word in theology. And that is justification. I, I, I literally have entire books. I'm, I'm sure Chris and Oscar and others you do too. I have entire books on my shelf devoted just to the subject of justification. It's such an essential concept. But to, to keep it at its most basic, justification is uh, it, it's actually a legal term. That means that you have been declared righteous. It's the opposite of a guilty charge. So here, here's the story. Scripture pictures a courtroom scene where, where God the Father is the perfect holy judge, and, and you're on trial, and what's at stake is your eternity. So you know how in our society, and depending on where you live, um, and, and what the charge is, if you're found guilty of a, of a crime worthy of death, you can either have life sentence or uh, you can be sentenced to death. Well, in God's courtroom, it's, it's really both. If you're declared guilty, you, you essentially receive an eternal death sentence. So you, you go to the horrors of hell where, where, you, where you die forever, which just makes the back of my neck tingle every time I say that. So uh, this is real. And, and the stakes are, are quite literally as high as they can possibly get. We're talking about eternity. And so each of us is going to take our turn before the judge, and, and let's say now it's your turn. Why should you not go to hell? Why, why should you have eternal life in God's presence in heaven? Well, let's, let's say in response that you put on your, your best lawyer voice, and, and you go into a reasoned defense of you know how, how, how much of a good person you are, and 
all the good things that you've done, you know, certainly compared to these other people. And, and uh, you know, you, you finish up and you feel like you offered a pretty good case. After all, you know, you're, you're a pretty good person when you think about it. Most, most people, you know, would say that. Well, if, if that's your defense, you will be held guilty for sure because the standard for life is perfection. Keeping God's law perfectly, never sinning one time. And I don't think I need to argue the case that when God opens the book of your life, every thought, word, action, deed, everything you've ever done, said, and thought, you're, you're going to be found to be far from perfect. I, again, I have to be honest and say that that would be frightening to have all that exposed about me. No one is perfect. No one is good. We do good things. But, man, look at the world. Look at your heart. We are all guilty many, many, many times over, which is why this scene is so spine-tingly scary, because there's nothing we can do to, to say or earn anything other than an eternal death sentence. And so when that becomes obvious, you, you, you sink in despair. You start freaking out as you come face-to-face -face with, with your depravity and God's perfectly holy, holiness and his perfect standard. And just when it seems hopeless, Jesus Christ comes in the room and he stands at your side as you're returning and he says, this one, he, he is to receive life, not death. And just as you, you start to regain some hope, Satan is there as your accuser, the prosecuting attorney, and he starts laughing and just starts going down the, the never-ending list of your sins, none of which you can deny, showing without a doubt that you do not deserve life. You are guilty. And Christ listens patiently, and then he turns to the judge and says, he's absolutely right. To which Satan smiles his bright smile, and, and you look at Jesus and say, what kind of an attorney are you? But Christ continues, and, and he says to the Father, the perfect judge of all creation, it is true that he deserves death. But I've taken his place. I paid the punishment for his sin. I, I, I bore an eternity of wrath on the cross on his behalf. And as a result, I have given him a sinner worthy of death, my perfect righteousness, so that in your eyes, when you look at him, you see me. He's perfectly righteous. His penalty is paid. And he is now to receive life. The judge looks at you and says to the horror of Satan, you have been declared righteous, your penalty has been paid, you may enter into life in me. And you will praise God for that for eternity, because you know that you are only saved because of Christ and his work on the cross. That's justification. It's, it's the very essence of the faith, and it is forever glorious. It never grows old. We will never cease to praise God for that. But as if anything could top that, it actually gets more astounding because God is so full of goodness and, and loving kindness and mercy and grace. Not only do we receive the eternal life that we don't deserve, but we, as verse 7 says, become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As Romans eight seventeen says, we become co-heirs with Christ, which is it's unbelievable to contemplate, but it basically means that the riches of salvation and everything that includes that are found in Christ are ours forever. 
not only are we saved, justified, which is forever unbelievable, but we're also heirs in Christ, adopted as kids of the King. It, it's like I said, it's just, it's too much to fathom. And as we just saw, the whole of salvation is found in these verses. We get salvation confused sometimes. We, we tend to just kind of limit salvation to, you know, we, we, we say a prayer and we're saved. And, that, and that's kind of salvation. But when Scripture talks about salvation, it includes our being regenerated, being given a new heart that believes in the gospel so that we're declared justified, we're not guilty, we're righteous, and through the work of God and his word in our lives, we are continually renewed or sanctified as we become more like Christ, as we one day will enter into eternity and enjoy the unbelievable riches of Christ that are found forever in him as his co-heirs. All of that is salvation. And, and we are just scratching the surface. Again, that, that's why theology is so unbelievably wonderful. Just praise our triune. But let's remember, all that theology, like I said, is meant to be a lived reality in the life of the believer. And the lived reality that, that all that incredible theology that we just ran through is pointing to in these verses is a transformed life that is to, result, that is to be the result of our transformed hearts. And again, that's something I love about Scripture because it doesn't just give us these, these wonderful, lofty theological truths the end. It gives us them, and then it says, now, here's how to live them out. Here's what living a transformed life looks like. So we started today by pointing out the ever-present desire to, to be transformed and, and the various ways that, that we might pursue that unsuccessfully. And now we know why all those temp attempts ultimately are unsuccessful. Because like we said at the beginning, only God can transform us from the inside out. But when we're transformed from the inside out, we are then now enabled to live his truth out before the world. Permanent, lasting, satisfying transformation can only happen through God and Christ working in and through those he saves. That is the reality of this world. So what does that mean practically? Well, it means at least three things in addition to to living holy, obedient lives, which Paul talked about in the verses before and the verses following what we're studying today. So in addition to that obvious truth, it means at least three other things. First, it means living in perpetual gratitude and thanksgiving to God. So much of, of the strife and sin in this world and in our own hearts, really it comes down to a, a deep-seated ingratitude. Instead of being thankful to God for, for what we do have, we feel like, we don't have what, what we deserve. We, we compare ourselves to others and we want what they have, or at least we want to tear down what they have so they can be miserable like us. Think about how much in our society and the discord in our lives stems back to, to being ungrateful, frustrated with, with where you are, wishing you had that, and understanding why the world has to be like this. As Christians, that, that, that really shouldn't be us, which is not to say that we should never be you know, striving to make ourselves and the world better through God's power, of course. But there's a profound difference between that and our really just being disgruntled with God and telling him he's doing it wrong. As believers, as we just ran through, whatever's going on in your life, 
we have so much to be forever grateful to God for, not, not the least of which is that we have life in him when we deserve death. That alone should make us perpetually thankful. If we have him, we, we have everything. We're heirs in him. Uh, what do we have to be unthankful for? Again, that, that's not to say that life doesn't have struggle and heartache. It absolutely does. But different from the world, in the midst of that struggle and heartache, we have the truth of having life and communion with God and an eternity in his presence to, to look forward to, which means even though we have times of sorrow and difficulty, ultimately, we live in gratitude and thanksgiving that we live in the riches of Christ, that we have in the riches of Christ and our salvation that's found in him. That, that's the, that should be the perpetual posture of our hearts, even, even in the difficult aspects of this world. That, that's, that's a truth. That's a lived reality that I was talking about that really hopefully should steady our, our hearts, our minds, our lives, so that we are, are just living categorically different from the world. The second lived reality of all that theology is that we need to check ourselves to make sure that we are not falling back into the list uh, that, that Paul reminds us of who we were before we were saved, that we ran through. Now, make no mistake, although we are to continually be growing in holiness, we will never be perfect in this life. We, we will continue to struggle with sin until we die. But we can never be cool with sin. And we should be careful that we are not slipping back into sinful patterns. We're to be living like Christ, which again means that we're living categorically different lives from the world. Now, it doesn't mean we wear special clothes, you know, special Christian clothes and drive special Christian cars or something like that. And that's how we're different from the world. Now, those are kind of more externals. It means that we've been transformed again from the inside out. And, and as a result, we function differently in the world. We have different values. We have different priorities. We live differently because we are following our king. We're living to please our king. So that means things like we talked about. We, we should not be anti-authority. We should not be following our, our sinful passions, envying and hating others. Yet, it's really easy to slip back into those things. Just to take that last one, I mean, goodness gracious, our culture is so increasingly crass and mean. I mean, it's 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 crazy how hateful we can be to one another. Uh, this maybe isn't the best example of that, but uh, a while back I was uh, backing out of my, my driveway, and even though I looked, I somehow didn't see this girl walking her, her dog. She's maybe 20 or so, I don't know. Um, and I was going like literally like one mile an hour. But um, as soon as I saw her, I, I slammed on my brakes, and I, I hopped out of the truck, and I, I said, oh, man, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. And she looked at me dead in the eye and just said, what's wrong with you? Go kill yourself. And I, I was like, what? I mean, I, I was in complete shock that she would say something so vile and hateful, especially when I'm in the middle of apologizing and totally owning my, my mistake. And she uttered some other you know, hateful things and just went on with her walk. You know, it kind of seems like a, a microcosm of what what happens all day, every day, all over the place. I mean, it's really kind of depressing. But, but again, it's, it's easy to do the same. It's easy to fall into that trap, to, to revert to the sinful practices that we did before we were saved, what we once were. It would have been easy to just kind of spew hate back at that girl. I mean, she, she actually kind of deserved it. Just like it's easy to 
like I said earlier, spew hate on social media or when someone cuts us off or to our spouse or you know, a million other interactions we have with other humans during the week. But we can't do that. We have been transformed to be lights of Christ in this dark world. And that means our, our third and last lived theological reality, which is that, that we must show the, the same patience, mercy, and love to the world that Christ did and does to us. And, and this, I, I have to say, is, is one of the more difficult practical aspects of the example of Christ. For me, like we talked about, Christ came in love to a people who, who murderously hated him. He, he saved people that, that didn't want him. He, he bore the beating, the insults, the murder of hateful sinners, and he kept his mouth shut, the unbelievable creator of the world. And he saved a horrible sinner like me, who's proven over and over how much I do not deserve to be saved. But in love, grace, and mercy, Christ saved me. And he saved you. So what right do we have to to self-righteously lash out at others who were blinded by Satan, like we talked about earlier. How can we who live in the light of, of the truth of Christ hate, you know, sin against, act just like those who have been darkened by the futility of, of their minds? Now, that to, to some, that might sound actually incredibly arrogant, as if I'm the Pharisee in Christ's parable saying, you know, thank God I'm not like all those horrible sinners. You know, as if I'm derogatorily saying, you know, guys, Take it easy on them. I mean, they're just, they're idiots in the dark and we're in the light. I mean, they kind of can't help it. So, yeah, just take it easy. You, you, you should know after all that we've covered so far, there's no way I can possibly be saying that. It's actually the opposite of arrogance. The reality is we know exactly what we deserve, and it's not salvation. As Paul said in these verses, before Christ, we were exactly like that. We'd still be like that without him, and we still are like that sometimes with him. So how can we look at the world and hate them back? Be unloving, ungracious, unmerciful, just, you know, disgusted at how off they are and everything. Rather, in the power of the Spirit, we are to show the same love, mercy, and grace that Christ has showed and continues to show to us. We're to love when hated. Or to speak love and truth in the face of vicious attacks and lies. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we just sort of roll over and don't fight. We absolutely fight. But we fight with the truth and love of the gospel, knowing that, that the world is dead in sin. And the only way, the only way to be transformed into light and life is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, just as it was with us. It's our only hope. It's their only hope. Christ is the only hope of the world. And so we do the most loving thing that we can do. We live and preach the gospel. That's the only hope. That's what saves people. That's what transforms people to live categorically different Christ-honoring lives, just like us who have been transformed by him. And that's what glorifies God and his people. We are saved by him will worship him for that for eternity and so we thank god for his transforming power both in this life and in the life to come and we praise him that it's all through him and we will do that 
we will praise and glorify Him forever. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.